So if you break it down and we're examining the why and what your value proposition is, okay, so coming into the market, everybody is marketing this warrior ethos mindset. And this is what it is because we say it's what it is. So when you look at white space traditionally as an entrepreneur, you want to go into that bubble that's not being serviced. There's nobody talking about community. So if I don't feel like I belong in the warrior ethos bucket, I may fall into this community bucket. Is that much of it? Is that, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post 9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 83 features Ruben Ayala, an Army veteran, the CEO and co-founder of Triple Nickel, and executive producer of Black Ops, a documentary series being produced with the National Veterans Memorial and Museum to amplify the stories of those seldom heard. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. All right, we are live. Good morning, Ruben Ayala. Welcome to Veteran Made. Good morning. Good morning, Kerry. How are you, man? I'm doing well, brother. This is, I think, this might be the last podcast I record in this house. I'm, I'm trying to get like one or two more in because um, I've got a move coming up to Columbus, Ohio, which folks have heard about. And you and I have a bit of a connection, uh, which we'll, we'll get to here in a little bit. Um, so I'm enjoying this this backdrop, this setup uh, a couple more times before figuring out where I'm going to do it in the new house. That's exciting, man. Yeah, we're, we're stoked. Um, so yeah, for those who don't know who you are, I would love if you could give just a brief primer um, on who you are, at where and when you served, um, and uh, we'll jump into some entrepreneurship questions after that. Boom, let's do it. So Ruben Ayala, I'm the CEO of Triple Nickel Clothing Company. Uh, former U.S. Army veteran, and uh, unfortunately for for some, I was an officer. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. We um, we uh, we have good fun with our with our officer friends, but it's uh, it is all in in good fun and, and love. Um, cool. So yeah, Triple Nickel is is a clothing brand and apparel brand, um, and and you've you've built it and grown it uh, to to a, a really legitimate, nice spot, and you've kind of you're pivoting off into some other things. So I, I want to. Talk a little bit about your entrepreneurship journey, kind of how you got to where you are right now and, and then how you got to what you're building um, towards with some of the storytelling efforts that, that you're going to be engaging in here uh, this year. So, um, your, can you tell us a little bit about your first company and where that idea came from and, and, and what your, your kind of your education on the entrepreneurial front was? Yeah, love to. So my first legitimate company, uh, I, I would say fully done on my own is uh when i got out of the military i i went to uh mba program executive mba program here at the university of texas and it was there that um, i had an idea of creating a vending company just vending machines but having healthy food options and i i can't take credit for for that um for that idea it was uh during an r r trip i had uh, while i was in iraq i was walking through the airport in Denver or Atlanta, one of the two. And I saw a magazine and it had a uh, picture of some guys in front of a vending machine and they were doing just that in California. And I thought it was really cool. Uh, I knew I wanted to settle in San Antonio 
It just came up on the uh, top 10 fattest cities in Men's Health magazine. And I thought the idea would make sense. Healthy food in a uh, city that suffers from obesity. Let's let's give it a try. So I used my my two years in the MBA program to develop the uh, business and marketing plan on what I was going to do. And then uh, I started a company after that. Did you uh, do the executive MBA program while you were still in or did you do that after you uh, retired? Afterwards, it, it, it would. I don't think that it would have been possible. Uh, programs like that are just are, are difficult to do active duty unless you you get that um, you get that school waiver to to just go to school full time. Right. Because it was a cohort for uh, two years straight. Got it. And what what was that transition like for you from the military environment, especially as an officer, then into into the MBA environment? It was hard uh, in my cohort. I want to say there was three other veterans that were in the cohort. Everybody else was, you know, made up of of people in civilian life who had never served before in a corporate track for their particular, you know, their particular job. You know, I, I had a lot of folks from USA, which was nice because they deal with uh, with the veteran culture. So they, they knew the, the community and the lingo a little bit. Uh, so it was it was easy to to uh, to converse with them. But. But then, you know, we had a lot of folks who who'd never done anything military wise, which was nice because it gave me I would say it benefited me more benefited them because it gave me an opportunity just to learn what it's like to be a civilian again in a very forgiving environment versus trying to cut my teeth going into a job and not really understanding the culture. Yeah, I, I would imagine that it would help kind of working with other, you know, high level uh, operators for back of a, lack of a better word, right on the civilian side, like folks who have been in business for a while um, or even not for a while, but have been in business are now in an executive MBA program where there's structure and you're there because you want to be there to learn the things that you want to learn and work with other folks instead of um, just, you know, like I struggled as an undergrad coming out as an enlisted guy because I, I mean, like not everybody wanted to be there. Some people were just there because their parents expected them to go to college or, you know, like I tended to get along better with with the commuters. Right. And the people that were, that were working and that maybe weren't there going to school full time. So I think probably going into an MBA program where there's a, a structured track and a kind of a targeted approach, even if it's individual targets within that cohort, everybody has a targeted approach for what they're trying to learn. No, absolutely. And, and I would also say that a big part of that experience wasn't just the students, but it's the professors. So we had a lot of professors who were were living that life, you know, real time. So, you know, one of our professors is an example. He was a deputy for the Federal Reserve Chair in Texas. So getting getting to learn economics from an actual person who works at the Federal Reserve at that level was amazing. You know, had a good a finance professor who was the former CFO for USA. So learning from those folks uh was 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 really impactful for me and it just gave me a, a better strategic mindset coming out here into the civilian world and establishing business yeah i still have great relationships with with my college professors because you know the commuters i i definitely um made connections with but it was those professors that i was able to make those connections with and you know part of that was just life experience i was a little bit older but part of it was some of those things i learned in the military doing dog and pony shows um, you know, for various general or, you know, uh, uh, 
officers and, and senior enlisted where, you know, I, I understood that, you know, a person might have higher rank and might have more experience. But if I stand at parade rest and speak respectfully, I will be able to have a conversation with that person. And I think a lot of young college students maybe don't have that military background, don't understand that. Yeah, there are there are uh, respectful ways to do things, but you can still have those conversations with folks who've who've been there. And in fact, if you're able to to push through that discomfort and have those conversations, you'll learn you'll learn quite a bit more than whatever it is that they're just offering as a professor. No doubt, no doubt, definitely. You know, for for anybody who's thinking about going back to college, that's that's really the big part of the experience. It's not just the students, but your professors uh, make a big impact too. Yeah. So uh, you had that idea in the airport. And do, were you entrepreneurial growing up or in the military? Did you ever think to yourself, man, I, I want to be an entrepreneur and grow and scale something? Or did the idea just come out of nowhere? How did you and then how did you kind of accept that idea? Like, how did it how did you receive it in your in your mind and in your heart? Uh, it was always in me. Um, you know, I would say I come from an entrepreneurial background. My mom, you know, growing up, I'm, so I'm, I'm from Puerto Rico and, and where that has relevance in the story is coming from the island where, you know, the, the economy is not that great, never has been that great. But my mother, she joined the army early on in life uh, or later in her life, but uh, early on in my life to get us out of, you know, bad situation where we were at. And even while she was in the army, she always had side hustles. She would do cakes, she would cut hair. She was always doing something to get extra money. So from an early from early, you know, from my early years, that's what I witnessed in my house is, is the value of hustle and grind. I got to see that part of service. So, you know, these things weren't new to me. Um, and it was always, she was always doing these things to meet a certain objective. So, you know, that's the same mindset I always, I always took. And when I was in the military, I did the same thing. My, my side hustle, and my passion always lied in real estate and always as a as a young lieutenant, I started investing in, in real estate and, and kept that habit up all the way to today. I wish that was something I got uh, started with earlier, uh, earlier in life uh, myself. I, I have a similar thing. My dad, my dad was an entrepreneur growing up as a consultant and would travel quite a, around quite a bit for work, working with different firms kind of all around the country. And then my brother is six years older than me. And uh, when he graduated college, he got into business with my dad and they were both traveling around quite a bit. And so I was in high school and then I was in the military and then I was in college and I was always observing and and not not even taking like journaled notes, but just I think mental mo notes, emotional notes, relational notes about the way that they approached travel and work um, and kind of going out to hunt, hunt for your food, so to speak. And uh, I, I actually remember when I'm like, when I first started freelancing in, in production and advertising and started traveling quite a bit, I remember sending them both, you know, kind of like an emotional group text where I was like, Hey, I've watched you two do this like my whole life. And now I'm out here on the other side of military service and I'm going out and doing the same thing in my own field. And it was kind of that really cool full circle moment where I'm like, man, the, both the environment that I came from and the relationships that I had um, with two people that I deeply respect are like, it's like, it's coming to uh, kind of coming full circle and coming to fruition, which is really cool. Yeah, you. Yeah, I, I tell my my kids all the time. You just never know how much, you know, your parents are impacting you and everything that they do. Uh, the adults that you meet, you know, along your journey. Yeah, yeah. How we, you know, it, it forms us into who we are today. It's a, it's been a great journey so far, man. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, I want to spend the bulk of the time talking about Triple Nickel and then your storytelling project, but 
what, what was the journey like from that first venture to to founding Triple Nickel? I know you had you had employees and you were doing really well, but then you wanted to pivot to to this more passion not passion project in the sense that it, it doesn't generate revenue, but more of a project that you were more passionate about personally. Yeah, uh, you stated it really well on both <laughs> on all accounts, but you know, triple nickel. Uh, I like to say was an accident. Um, if it wasn't for COVID, there would be no triple nickel. I would still, I would still be in the vending business. I'm pretty sure of it. Um, but COVID just changed everything. As the world slowed down, as people lost their jobs, for guys like me who were in the restaurant and food business, you know, everything just came to a halt. Nothing that we could do about it, but it just it gave me an opportunity to think and, and observe what was going on. And instead of complaining about the things I saw in the marketplace, in the in the community, I decided I wanted to do something about it and, and I wanted to do something about it with, with people that, um, you know, that I'd served with, that I, that I trusted. And, and that's really how triple nickel came about. And by virtue of how we've grown and, and where we're going, it became really difficult for me to run both companies. So I decided to sell the vending company last year and just really stick with triple nickel and, and provide that opportunity to somebody else to, to take the vending company you know, to places that, that I wasn't going to be able to. That's great. So there's a few threads I want to pull on there. Like one, I think that and working backwards, that last piece I think is key. Um, you very easily could have said, I want to do both. I can do both. You could have stretched yourself too thin, but you had kind of the experience and the wisdom to see that you wouldn't actually be able to do that and that your maybe, maybe your heart wasn't behind that business. And so can you talk a little bit, unpack the mindset uh, around why you made that decision and was it difficult for you or did you kind of have any of these struggles or was it pretty easy to just be like, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm moving on to this other thing. <laughs> no, it was tough. I, I think if it was just me, uh, it would have been a lot easier, but you know, I had employees, I had, um, a warehouse with a lease, you know, a landlord who had taken to me. Um, so, you know, I have an organism that, you know, that we built, we have customers who, I've worked with for years that depended on my services. They, you know, we have a relationship. So it, it, these are all relationships that I had to figure out how to cut ties with in an amicable manner, you know, for, through the course of 12 months, that's about how long it took me to, you know, find the right buyer, go through the transaction, do that left seat, right seat ride. Like we like to say in the military and, and, and hand it over. So it was a, it was a very long drawn out process. So it wasn't something that, you know, took overnight. Um, and then I think we have real life examples. You look at the Elon Musk of the world, you know, trying to run all these companies, you will run yourself ragged. You know, I'm a father, husband, and to try to fit all of that in a 24 hour day, uh, it came, it became really clear that I couldn't do both. I mean, even trying to run triple nickel with everything that we're doing, is, is difficult just to just to keep it all together and, and running nicely. So yeah, it was it was a uh, I, I like to say it was a mature decision on my part, but you know, um, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it sounds like it. I I mean I deeply respect it because you know being a husband and being a father is the most important thing in the world to me. And every every other venture that I have is driven 
by that and is, is like kind of on that foundation, right? And so if I'm working for a purpose and building a brand or, or working for brands that I believe in, that's great, but that doesn't mean anything if that's taking up all 24 hours of my day and I'm, I'm not able to spend that time with my my wife and my daughter, um, you know, and, and really build that. I don't like to call it a balanced life, but a very integrated life um, where yeah. all of these things feed each other. But that foundation is is the home and, and his family. Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for, for, for your approach there. Um, so there's two things I love about, about triple nickel as a brand. Um, I always joke and I always say like when I started this podcast and when I kind of started running my own merch, I always joke, like the last thing our community needs is another t-shirt company and another podcast. Um, the unspoken part of that at the end is if it isn't differentiated and serving in a better way, right? So yeah, we don't need another apparel company that is just another apparel company that has the same look, the same feel, serves the same kind of segment of the of the veteran population or the military population. And then the other piece being, I always joke, you know, my byline on social and kind of like across the internet is not an operator. Um, I take great pride in being a flight line guy. I take great pride in, in um, having deployed but never left the wire um, and serving the way that I served with the people that I served with. And you you capture both of those things really well in the triple nickel brand. Can you talk about uh, why you built the brand the way that you did and what differentiates you um, and kind of what your vision was for it initially that COVID year. And then we can start to get into where you're taking it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, all good questions. Uh, I'll try to unpackage it as, as best and concise as I can. So, you know, as mentioned, if it wasn't for COVID, there would be no triple nickel. That's uh, that's a fact that everybody on the team would agree with. And during COVID, what I saw because mind you, before COVID, I, I I did not I detached myself from the veteran community for the most part. I I had no idea what was going on with it. The 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 companies that were operating in it, you know, you 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 always hear of the big companies, especially the ones that's gone public and stuff. But other than that, I, I wasn't too too tied into it. I did all my business on the civilian side, hung my pistol up, pistol belt up. But when I started getting targeted. Uh, heavily on social media and stuff. What I saw was just a a, a, a culture where if you look at the uh, pendulum, the way it swings, it swung all the way to one side. And that one side was, hey, if you're going to be in this veteran space, you got to meet a few metrics. Number one, you got to be an operator of some sort, right? Whatever that means. Um, you had to, if you want to be a cool veteran, you got to be a combat veteran not the ones who stayed inside the wire, but the ones who left the wire, you know? So it, it seemed really weird to me uh, that this is the state of, uh, of the veteran community. Cause that's, you know, very far, far from the truth. So I, I thought that the easiest way to, to get in the mix was to create another t-shirt company because it's it's a form of expression and it it seemed like an easy thing to do i, I never made clothing before but I said okay we'll just put our own messages um and the ironic part was you know we came from that community and on on the special operations side of the house you know if you want to call us operators cool if you don't cool um it's not a term that i ever use but as a former special forces guy, I wanted to change the narrative to say, hey, you know, I'm that guy you claim to be, but you don't have to be that guy. You can be 
just a regular person, you know, it's, and, and, and it actually takes it takes more uh, of of support personnel to to win wars than it does people kicking indoors. So those are the narratives that we had that we wanted to figure out a great way to create a company and culture that everyone felt like they could see themselves in. So that was really the premise of Triple Nickel. It's taking everything and all of the stereotypes that have been exacerbated in the community and be the average Joe's gym, you know? <laughs> well, we love, a, we love a good movie reference. Yes. Dodgeball for those listening who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So we, 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 we're, we're the average Joe's. What do you, what do you personally believe is the value? Um, like, why is that a value prop? I agree, obviously, but just to bulletproof it, I want to hear like from your perspective, why is, why is that, um, a legitimate value prop to, to drive revenue and sales as, as an entrepreneur, but then on the emotional, the relational, the cultural side, what is it? Um, what's your answer to that question? Why is it valuable? Yeah, that's, that's, that's another good question. So if you break, if you break it down, if we're in an MBA classroom and we're examining the why and what your value proposition is, okay. So coming into the market, you look at what everybody's doing and what everybody is doing is, 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 is uh, marketing this warrior ethos mindset. And the warrior ethos mindset is one, two, three. And this is what it is because we say it's what it is. So when you look at white space traditionally as an entrepreneur, you wanna go into that bubble that's not being serviced. And, and the bubble that I saw was, okay, there's nobody talking about community. So if I don't feel like I belong in the warrior ethos bucket, I may fall into this community bucket and a community bucket is going to be those that don't feel represented there. People from the LGBTQ community, you know, they're being ostracized in that community because they don't fall under that warrior ethos bucket. Um, people of color, you know, very, very seldom, very seldom do you see brands that expose that warrior ethos really target people of color and people of color. Traditionally, they are huge on supporting their communities and where they come from. So I don't need to put the American flag on everything. I want to put a Puerto Rican flag on a piece of clothing, but still recognize that you're an American citizen. I'm totally cool with that. You go to the other side, you may get ridiculed for that. So, we, in short, when it comes to a value proposition, we wanted to talk to the market that the warrior ethers buckets weren't talking to. So as a value proposition is, how can guys creating this clothing company who've never done it before come in and talk my language? I can see myself in them. You know, that, that, that's really what we tried to do with triple nickel. And, and that was our CVP from, from the, from the jump, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, it's, it's interesting if you, if you think about our community, the veteran community, the military community, kind of as a, as a check mark on the traditional DEI um, kind of checklist corporate, uh, you know, speaking from a corporate standpoint, um, the, all of the other ones are actually nested inside of us as well. Like we are already a very diverse community. So if 
there are brands that aren't speaking to that diversity within within the community. Uh, you know, be that skin color, orientation, background, experience, like what have you. Like there, there. That's a that's a huge market that you can move in and, and serve and generate revenue. But more than anything, that is to your point a community that prides itself on building community and continuing to build that community. Um, and I think that's partly why those other brands are are very successful and good on them for building a certain um, you know brand and community kind of within that. But there's more room um, in our community for for more brands. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like when I, I worked with NASCAR uh, uh, several years ago on the advertising agency side and um, I produced their campaigns for a few years. And one of the last films that I did was um, was like a branded content kind of corporate film. It wasn't like a commercial or anything like that. <clears throat> but we went around um, to Bristol, uh, Tennessee, the track there, deep, deep, deep in the heart of, of the South, obviously. And we um, went around asking about just various different brands and what people want to see coming in to the sport. Um, and, you know, manufacturers that are not traditional American manufacturers have found their way into the sport and more are going to find their way into the sport because people want that. And actually people who support the other manufacturers are like, no, bring those manufacturers in so there can be more competition and there can be more. I mean, NASCAR is the perfect example of like, there's real estate everywhere on somebody's fire suit on somebody's yeah. car like there's real estate everywhere for as many brands as want want to participate and buy in i mean you see the diversity of that sport you know daniel suarez and, and others that are coming in from other countries or other cultures within our country um and there's so much room for everyone so i've always thought about that particular example as one that's emblematic of um of ways that other communities can embrace uh, diversity, both both because it's the right thing to do from a cultural standpoint, but also from a revenue standpoint, there there's there's room for everybody in the marketplace. Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. And uh, NASCAR is a really good analogy to uh, to what we're doing, um, especially in a veteran culture. So what did you start with? What were the SKUs that you started with? Like, where did you you're like all right, apparel brand? I want to speak to members of the community. Where did you start? Uh, man. Let me go back in uh, to the Rolo decks, man. Uh, Skews wise, it, 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 we kept it really simple. It was, you know, we have our team shirts, obviously. They, they still have those today with just triple nickel on it. And when we came out the gate, we came out the gate pretty hard with conscious messaging. So, like this shirt that I have on, it's a fist. Got a lot of flack for this one. It's a fist, raised fist with an American flag. And I remember a lot of people filling my DMs with just very disappointed DMs, um, calling us a pseudo terrorist organization. We're going to fail. You're going to regret it. What are you thinking? Um, you know, we have a shirt that uh, is an anti-Confederate flag shirt. Um, so we were very in your face with it. Very public enemy esque. Um, and we wanted to make a statement and that was really what we wanted to do the first year was we wanted to make a clear, concise statement. We went ugly early, if you will. And, and we know that we had to, it was in order to come into a space like that. It's, um, especially that is very alpha driven. You have to assert yourself as an alpha and, and establish dominance. And that's really what, what we did the first year. That's how I would describe the first year. 
that makes it makes a ton of sense because it's like you're not going to come into a space and try to Trojan horse it, right? And be like, oh, we're this thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, on day 366, like we're going to turn into this other thing. And, you know, we actually, how we got you, you know, kind of it's like serve the community, serve the community. I think I lost you there for a you, second. Oh, are you there? I didn't lose you. I think we're good. Can you hear me? Hello, hello. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Let me see. How about now? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I got you now. Yeah, I think it was an issue with my headphones. Oh, dang. Oh, good. I, yeah, I, I heard you. I heard you the whole time. So, <laughs> so we're good. Um, Sorry about that. No, no, all good, man. Um, yeah, so I was just saying, I mean, it makes sense. It's like if, if you're going to be a bear breed grizzly, right? Like you don't want a Trojan horse it. You don't want to build something and then on day 366, be like, aha, I got you. And now here's what we really believe kind of thing. It's like, no, if you're going to serve the community, serve the community. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that was, uh, I, you know, it, it was a big experiment, man. We didn't know what was going to happen, but that was that was definitely our approach. We just, we're going to go hard in the paint and establish dominance you know we have the we already have the street credibility so it's it's no need to to try to sell you on what we are because we already are it was just a matter of just making as much noise as we could yeah uh, that's the first year has there been much crossover appeal to the non-veteran community or the non-military community just like from a streetwear kind of apparel standpoint getting there getting there and i tell you that's hard the hardest thing I found in doing this. So this is a good lesson learned on the business side with healthy vending. We were very strong regionally and locally. So going in and establishing a network at a local level, at a regional level, I felt extremely comfortable and very, very proficient, but coming in and trying to do that at a national level with hopes of doing it internationally, extremely difficult when you're doing it on your own dime. So it's taken us three years to get to the point where we are today and starting to scratch the service on getting out of that veteran bubble and going into the civilian place. Very difficult with, with little money to do it with. Yeah. I mean, my, my gut, my gut tells me that, and obviously I'm not selling apparel the, the way that, that you are. Um, but even with building this brand, right? Like I know veteran made mil military to civilian transition career pivots, like that happens in the military community every year. Right. And so there's a, there's an audience for that. I've always had in the back of my mind, I know there's a secondary audience here, which is anybody who's a professional that is pivoting a career. Maybe they're going to an MBA uh, or maybe they're just going to do a career pivot um, from one industry to another or within an industry. Like I've always known that's a secondary audience, but I can't serve that. I can't let serving that audience get in the way of serving my primary audience, niching all the way down and then allowing that crossover to kind of happen on its own timeline. And then once like you're talking about revenue is generated and you have a little bit more um, capital to work with, you're able to, know, okay, well, let's put a little bit of extra effort into this and just to test and learn and kind of see how it goes. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, you ask yourself that question every day, but it's, uh, it's allowing yourself the opportunity to step back and look at the forest and kind of listen and see where, where the, the tide is going to take you. And that's, that's where we are right now. 
you know, if you look at the first, we talked about the first year, why we started the first year, you know, we're NWA with it. We're public enemy with it. Um, anybody that's getting in our way, you either get, get on the bus with us or, you know, you're getting left behind, you know, the second year was incredible. You know, now the third year is okay. Getting, getting our chi and, and, and just listening to where it is that we need to go. Yeah, that's right. That's like the the path emerges from the work that you're doing, right? And it's not like a woo-woo kind of like, oh, the path, the, the path's going to be illuminated. It's like, no, the path is illuminated by the work that you're doing that's right in front of you. And you yes. take step after step. And the more work you do, the farther out the light goes. And so that path emerges and you're able to kind of follow it in, in different ways or at different speeds. Uh, always. Different intensities, yeah. Yeah, always. You know, the path is going to tell you, oh, man, you probably need to hang it up and it's time to just let it go. Or it's, you know, for me with the vending, it's like, it's time to sell. It's time to give it up to somebody. So it's just, you gotta, you gotta find time for yourself to listen to what is going on. And and most of the time, these pivots, whether it be out the business, growing the business, whatever it is, it takes a long time. It takes months. It takes years at times. And that's the difficult part of it. Yeah, no doubt. So storytelling is, and, and kind of the, the narrative approach is, it seems to me is I'm built into the fabric of, of Triple Nickel and you're moving towards this big storytelling project. Um, can you tell us what that project is, what the genesis of it was and, and kind of how, how it folds into, um, into the identity of Triple Nickel? Yeah. So storytelling has always been a part of Triple Nickel when we, part of the, the tenants, if you will, of how we would go about our marketing and our public persona with Triple Nickel was always with the tenant that we are not the heroes of this story. We would always make others the heroes of our story. So Triple Nickel was named after the 555th Parachute Infantry Battalion. And by doing that, we always placed the name and the narrative on somebody else because we're here to speak, be facilitators for those who are seldom heard, you know? So it, that was our leadership challenge. Just like I explained to you, we saw a problem and this was the solution. Instead of coming out and just bitching about it, we wanted to do it by empowering others. So with that being said, our, Going into our third year, um, yeah, in our, in our third year, we came on the radar of the National Veterans Museum in Columbus, Ohio. So kind of full circle between you and I. They liked what we were doing in our approach. They wanted to discuss about having us in their gift shop, how we can do some collaborations. We flew to Columbus, had a great meeting. When we were leaving, uh, it was mentioned to us that they had a gap for Black History 2024. And if we had any ideas to please let them know. We came up with this concept of, hey, what if we told some stories of Black folks who served in special, Black veterans who served in special operations? You know, that's something that we knew about. We have plenty of, you know, connections in the community. Let's do it. We'll take their picture. We'll write up a couple of 
of essays and and interview them and you can go to the museum scan a qr code so just a, a very small exhibit they love the idea but asked us to expand it to all underrepresented groups so what started as a museum exhibit slowly morphed into a mini documentary series so by june of last year we decided to create a mini documentary called Black Ops that'll take part in six seasons. I'm sorry, three seasons. The first season being Blacks in Special Operations. And that's where we are right now. Um, so again, just listening to kind of where the tides take you, that's, I, I when we first started the company, I never thought um, we would be making t-shirts um, I would learn how to do a process like that. Now we're doing our own. I never thought we'd be making a movie. Now we're, you know, now we're doing that. So it's, it's been a crazy journey, man, but that's, that's how that came about. Yeah. So your meetings with them, um, you, you had a good meeting with them and, and put out the idea for, for, like you said, a small exhibit mm -hmm. in the back of your mind, were you thinking that it could be anything larger at all? Or were you kind of struck uh, by their response? Yeah, I was, I was. First, you know, uh, I didn't expect to be making a movie. So just that's a hard no. Uh, I didn't think that was a, a place we would be going. I didn't I didn't think about it because I never thought of being able to do something like that. So what what I was struck by was the idea that they would provide a couple of knuckle draggers like us an opportunity to have an exhibit at a national museum. And it was an honor. So even if we just had a little corner with a couple of pictures with a QR code so you can listen in to an interview, that would have been a win for 2024. Um, to where we are now, you know, uploading a documentary on Amazon Prime. Whew, man, it's a, it's still unreal, man. So what was the process like for you to learn to become a filmmaker. And I know you're not the only one, like you have, you have a team and you have uh, folks who are subject matter experts in, in, um, you know, shooting and, and audio recording and all of that stuff. But what was your first step as, as an EP of this project being like, okay, cool, we'll make this. What, what happened? What'd you do? Yeah. So we have a process uh, in, in special forces that's called isolation. Anytime that we get ready to do an extremely difficult mission going to someplace new we go into what's called isolation and that's when all the members of the team we're just brainstorming putting spaghetti on the wall we don't leave isolation until the plan is is laid out so we went into isolation and you know after f many freak out sessions you know even in a in a brown paper bag <laughs> You know, we emerged with 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 the confidence that we can do this. Um, and for any filmmakers out there, don't laugh at me. But season one has a total of 10 episodes. And each episode is chronicling one individual. The first episode is us basically world building and, and telling the who, what, why of why Black Ops is important. So it wasn't until we filmed almost every episode with no script. Okay. 
um, just going in, man, and just doing raw interviews. And, and it wasn't until um, this, the we just filmed the first episode. We have two more episodes to film, uh, one more episode to film. The, the last episode we filmed, we finally had a script and the light bulb came on like, man, this is how you do a movie. This makes things so much better for editing on the back end. So to answer your question, uh, and I tell that quick war story is because we have been building this plane of flight. We've taken every episode that we film, we took the lessons learned from it, and we made the next one better and better. So this last episode that we just filmed, it made things so much easier. This weekend, we're flying out to Tampa to film our last episode, and that one is going to go so much better. So now going into season two, and you and I have had this these couple of these conversations, is we are in a better place to be able to provide guidance and direction on how we want these things done. But it's taken us seven months of playing filmmaker and watching YouTube videos on how to do it to get to this point. So yeah, man, we just been, we've been making it up as we go. I love that answer. It's like, you know, it is the right answer. That seven months of figuring it out through your own experiences uh, is half as long as it could have been if you were trying to sit down and figure out how do I how do I plan and framework for something I don't know how to do? The answer to plan and framework for something you don't know how to do is to go do it and figure it out while you're doing it. Obviously, at scale, you want to make sure that you're not spending too much money. You don't want to put yourself in a position to, to lose capital or influence or opportunity or anything like that. But kind of within the confines of, of a reasonably budgeted project, go figure it out. I love that. Absolutely, man. Yeah. I, I And the way it's kind of boiled down is I've become the script writer. Chris is, you know, the, the, the videographer focusing on that. You know, all of our all of our crew, everybody is pitching in between holding lights, you know, setting up the microphones. Um, we have a, a dedicated narrator, you know, the guy in our in our team who who's the best orator, you know, he's become the narrator of the project. So it, it's been great to to be able to find other people's strengths through this. And that's and that's where the isolation process really, really helps out. Yeah, no doubt. My my wife, who was on the podcast uh, two or three episodes ago, she directed a feature film this year about the uh, directed it last year, got released this year about three WNBA players. We did a whole episode on it. And I don't think we touched on this in the episode, but she had a career pivot of her own. She played college golf uh, and then got into education and charter school operations and then left charter school operations and, and teaching to um, kind of come work with me on the production and advertising side and then split off and did her own thing and has since scaled a career and since scaled a career from producer to director. And along that journey, you know, she would, she would direct some things here and there and would come back and we would, um, you know, we would bulletproof things and we would swap stories and we would have these conversations. And uh, she said a few times, she was like, well, you know, I didn't go to film school like you did. So I don't know if this thing is true. And I kept, I kept kind of giving her a hard time, but giving her a hard time as a Trojan horse for the real note, which is, you don't fucking need film school. Like if you're out there doing it, you're learning while you do it and you're having conversations and experiences with other practitioners in the field, that is way more valuable than sitting in some film school and learning how Quentin Tarantino did it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny. We say that to ourselves all the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's mainly just out of motivation uh, to, to, to keep going, you know, but it, it's, it's hard, man. Um, and, and, 
probably the biggest kicker of it all. And people call us crazy is, you know, we we're doing this out of pocket um, to keep costs at zero. So when you, you look at the, the film crew, it's, you know, man, we're like the bad news bears when we show up, you know, uh, getting it all done, but it's, it's gotten better every single time. And the, you've seen the trailer, you know, I think for, for being a couple of guys who haven't done this before, I think, I think we're doing okay. Uh, better than okay. It's great. I'm, I'm super stoked to see, to see the whole thing and, and to see where that whole journey unfolds and goes. Um, so I'd love to spend the the last bit here just talking a little bit about the importance of that content, the importance of that subject matter. I, I was writing a little bit about it this morning. There's I started a daily newsletter and shameless plug, I guess, in the middle of this episode. But um, and the the kind of first week of content this week as of as of this recording, last week or two weeks ago as of as of this airing. Um, I touched a little bit on on the recruiting crisis, um, and and I and I think it's kind of paralleled with with the meaning crisis that we're experiencing at large as a, as an American culture. But specifically, there's there is a recruiting crisis in general uh, for the military for the DoD, and you're highlighting a, a group of people, groups of people, but for this first one, a group of people that have a storied history of serving in special operations, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, so I'm not asking you to solve the recruiting crisis in the next 13, 12 minutes to end this podcast, but I am curious like what your perspective is maybe on that in general. And if stories like this can help, um, you know, tell the larger story in a way that, that might give people a better understanding of military service and the opportunities for everyone. Yeah. So this stories like this will help. That's the bottom line. Um, because. I would venture to say that the majority of, I would say, underrepresented groups that end up not joining in these elite units do so because they feel like they can't. And the reason that they feel like they can't is because they don't see themselves a lot in those groups. And, and I'll break that down. So, so for those who don't understand what I'm saying, can better understand what I'm saying. In order to see yourself rise uh, to, you know, to, to, to positions of, of influence, or, you know, whatever the case may be, it's helpful to see yourself in that position, you know, to give you the confidence to do it. And having been in those shoes, it just makes it easier when you see somebody like you doing it because as you do the train up, as you do the studying, the preparation, it gives you that motivation because you know somebody has already paved the path for you. So one of our hopes for Black Ops is that we are able to touch a young up and coming person that may be looking at the military as a as a viable career or a young service member who may be looking at one of these organizations as a viable career pivot for them so being able to provide them with that opportunity to have that one-on-one with that person who was a trailblazer in their service is is huge uh it's something that we didn't have um and i'll just give you a quick war story of one of our subjects this you know, this weekend, we're going to go interview retired General 
uh, Remo Butler. He's the first uh, black special forces officer to make the rank of general. He's a he's a legend in our community. You know, we're going to his house and we're going to interview him. I remember watching him on the History Channel and the making of, you know, the Green Berets or the, uh, something like that. But it was the first time that the the JFK Warfare Center and the Navy SEAL program in Coronado were filmed by, you know, by a, uh, by a news agency. And I remember seeing General Butler, uh, then Colonel Butler, uh, as the head of the schoolhouse. And, and that motivated me to say, okay, I had no idea they had guys like that in the Green Berets. I think that's something I can do one day. So that's, that's kind of our hope. I love it. I love it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we'll link out. I know, does the trailer you shared with me, is that is that public? Or is that a private link? I can't no, remember. it's 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 public. Yeah, yeah. It's we'll share that out. We'll share everything out in the in the show notes. Um, and uh, and and um, you know, pr promo that and, and share everything out as, as wide as we can. Again, I'm, I'm super stoked to see the whole thing. I've I've seen bits and pieces, and you know, I've had some conversations about it already. So I, I know no more than most, and, and I'm excited to to share it out and um and and see where it goes, and uh, probably have you back on and, and talk about it uh, again at some point once once it's all live and we can talk. More of the filmmaking process and all of that as you as you uh, venture forth and and um, and do more on that front. Um, so before I get to you know, the open ended question that ends each podcast, where can folks find you um, or the company or the film? Where where would you like to drive traffic? What can I tag, and where can people visit? You can find us anywhere at at triple underscore nickel n i k e l, or you can go to our website at triple nickel .com. Again, that's N-I-K-E-L, triple nickel. Dope. We will tag and share and collaborate and all of that good stuff. Um, all right. To end each episode, Ruben, I ask an open-ended question. What is on your heart and what's on your mind for our community right now? Could be a piece of advice, something you want to get off your chest, or something you want to reiterate from what we've already talked about. But Ruben, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? Yeah, I would say what's on my heart right now is, uh, is not to worry, not to panic, not to uh, have any anxiety. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now, domestically and internationally, but keep the faith in yourself, keep the faith in your family and your community, um, and, and everything is going to work itself out. You know, you always got a buddy that you can call, uh, and if you don't, call us at Triple Nickel, and we'll, we'll be happy to talk with you, too. Rock on. I love it. Appreciate what you do. Appreciate your time. Uh, excited to do this again. Awesome, man. I appreciate you having me, Kerry. All right, Ruben. We'll see you. Take care, man.